Romans chapter 16, Paul writing, he says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church of Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Apeanetus, uh, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Adronicus, Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Statius, my, my beloved. Greet Apellus, approved in Christ. you got to love these names. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. How many Aristobulus friends do you have? Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are, of, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa. These are, most people believe that these are twins who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus. <laughs> He's a dog lover. Chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Legend, Hermas, Patrobas, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet uh, Philologus. And Julia, there's a good name right there, Julia, and, and, and Bill, you know, <laughs> and Julia, uh, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, the churches of Christ, and they greet you. Father, here we have before us a lot of names that we have never really heard. Some we have. Not really understanding the significance of every one of these names, and yet you chose to pen their names down into your word where even though we struggled over the pronunciation of their words, Lord, we read them and we acknowledge and note that they are there because, Lord, you chose to put them in this word for us to remember them. And so we do this day. We thank you, God, for their witness. We thank you for their testimony that had such an impact on Paul that he felt the need to put their names down on on a letter that would be read for centuries. We thank you, Lord, for the life that they lived. Undoubtedly, there was failures in every one of their lives, but there was also victory. And for that, Lord, we can identify. We pray, Lord, that we can draw some analogy, we can draw some illustrative uh, uh, examples for ourselves that we might be able to live in such a way that would please you. For, Lord, our names are written down. Those of us who have a relationship with you, our names are written down in the book of life, much like these names. And Lord, you know every name. You know the pronunciation of every one of our names. Not only that, but Lord, you know us even better than we know our own selves. You know us better than our best friend, our spouse, our mother, our father, whoever it might be. The closest person to us in this life, even ourselves included, you know us better than that. And yet you love us in spite of us, in spite of our weaknesses. And Lord, for that, even as we spent the worship time praying about and thanking you for, we just thank you, God, that you love us still. God, we're so blessed to have you as God. We are so blessed to have you as a father. We're so blessed to know that you have a future and a hope for us. 
Thank you, God. We lift up this time to you. We pray, God, that we'd be able to draw something out from these verses, these 16 verses, that would would apply to us and how we'd be able to walk out of this place, knowing you better than we did when we walked in. And so, Lord, that is our prayer. That is our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So what am I going to do with all these names? Well, I assure you, I'm not going to go through every one of these names. I will point out a couple of names and, and uh, draw some, some uh, uh, a message out of some of uh, these names or uh, some of the things that these people have done and are noted for. Um, beginning in verse 1, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who was a servant of the church in Cetria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Um, as you see these couple of verses here, we see that she's in the church. She's a servant in the church in Centria. That area, Centria is where Paul actually wrote the letter to the book of Romans. And so Paul is there. Paul is a part of that church. Can you imagine being in a church where Paul, the apostle, uh, would get up and speak? Um, how fascinating that would be. I know that there are many you know, men that have, have lived upon, and women that have lived upon the face of this earth that are you know, noted saints, where we just, we, we are... We look at their life and we're, we're blown away at the impact that they've had. You know, Billy Graham, you know, you think of a Billy Graham and you go, wow, what, a, what an intimidating thing that would be to have him come in and sit in your service. But you know, that's what he would oftentimes do with Ruth or when he was out, you know, around the country, around the world. He would oftentimes just stop in at a church and he'd come in after the church had begun, because he never wanted to be a distraction, he'd come after the church had begun and he'd leave before the church uh, ended just because he didn't want attention to be drawn on him. That's not the point. He came over to Fort Lauderdale one time and you can imagine, you know, Pastor Bob was sitting in there and he was speaking and uh, it just so happened to be that, that uh, um, Billy, Graham's Graham, or Billy Graham's grandson is, is still on staff over at Fort Lauderdale. His name is Stefan Chavigian and, and Stefan, um, that's his grandpa. And his grandpa, Billy Graham, comes to the church. <laughs> and and uh, Bob's in there teaching. And Billy Graham, he's coming in. And, and word got to Stefan that he's coming in. And, and so they made sure that there was a place in the back of the sanctuary for him to sit. And so there was a, a place where they're all the way right at the very back door of a large facility. I mean, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale is a very large facility. And, and can you imagine, as Bob got up to teach, he's beginning to teach, and all of a sudden the back door opens. And, and when you're standing here in a pulpit and you look in, and I've stood there in that pulpit and taught, it, when someone opens that back door, your attention goes to it. Because you're, you're you know, is it just person coming in to sit down or is somebody going to kill me? I don't know. Whatever, whatever it is, you know, they, they, the door opens and, and here comes Billy Graham. And he sits down right in the back row, you know, and you go, Okay, I better have studied. Can you imagine how intimidating that would be? But, but you know what? That's not what the guy was about. That was not what the guy was about. He was never about that. It is intimidating when some of your heroes of the faith are there. But to be able to, to sit at the feet of one of these guys, I've had an opportunity to sit at the feet back when I was, you know, some of your kids' age here right now, some of the high school age. 
Yeah, I, I went to a church out in California, Calvary, or not Calvary Chapel, it was uh, Ukaipa First Baptist Church. First Baptist Church of Ukaipa in California, and it was a fairly large church. We had about 1,300 members at the time, and, and we used to have an, a, a, an evangelistic week uh, conference. Every year we'd have it for a whole week, and we'd have different speakers that would come in, and, and different speakers that would come in. Guys that today I look at and rely on on much of what it is that, that, that they've written and how they've studied, and I draw you know, from their books. You know, J. Dwight, J. Dwight Pentecost. What a great last name of a pastor, you know, you think about it, his last name is Pentecost, you know, J. Dwight Pentecost, he didn't change it, that was just his name, but, uh, you know, he wrote a book uh, uh, on uh, end times events, you know, of, uh, I said evangelistic, I meant, I meant eschatol- eschatology, you know, of, of end times events is what these guys would do, he wrote a book called Things to Come, I still use it to this very day, um, I think I may even have one over here, you know. But as a high school student, I would sit there and I would listen to a J. Dwight Pentecost speak, a David Brees, who was a, a, a master in in end times, you know, Lehman Strauss, who also was a you know very well versed man in uh, you know uh, uh, end times events. John Wolverd. Some of you guys might understand or, or know the name John Wolverd. Um, here's a man that is is very well known. Um, as a you know theologian and and a, a and a, a man able to to really parse the words on end times events and 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 he has many many different commentaries and books out. Um, the Bible knowledge commentary actually is written is co-written by by John Wolvert and and J Vernon McGee. How many of you guys have ever heard J Vernon McGee? Just how many? Just by a raise of hands. How many of you guys? Yeah, you know, probably a third of us in this room. And, and folks, let me tell you, this is where the rubber meets the road. I, you know, I got to sit at that guy's feet many times because he would come to the church and he spoke. And so I got to see him and, and, and meet him. And, and, and yet I was kind of a flake as I was back in high school. I wasn't really walking with the Lord. And yet God allowed me to sit at the feet of many of these men where I look back on and I've actually gone back and secured some of the, of, of the uh, not videos, but some of the Kids, I know you're not going to understand this word. Cassette, cassette of of these guys. You know, I, any of you kids not know what a cassette is? You know that I have some of these cassettes of these guys, and I've gone back and listened to them. It's awesome. It's awesome. And so here's the thing. You know, can you imagine being in Centuria and sitting at the feet of Paul as he's teaching? You have no idea at that time the magnitude and, and the impact of this man's ministry upon the world and yet you're sitting there and you're just blessed to be able to be filled with what this guy is saying. Well, that's Centuria. That's where Paul is hanging out and writing the book of uh, Romans or the letter to the Romans. Well, Phoebe is there. Phoebe um, literally in the Greek literally means, her name means radiant or beaming or glowing or sunny. We all know those kinds of people in our lives, right? I mean, you just walk around and you just go, my goodness, I, how can you not have a, 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 a new outlook on your day regardless of how bad your day is and yet you have this kind of a person that comes along in your life and they're just always radiant. They're just always glowing. They just are always in a good mood regardless of how bad it is. You know, one of my best friends in my whole life right now, his name is Pastor Bob Davis. He's a, a pastor in uh, uh, Idaho, Post Falls, Idaho, North Country Chapel. Uh, we've 
are, I, I just, I love the guy. I get emails from him and we talk and text each week. And, and he's a guy that I love to have in my life because I, I, I took over for one of his teachings at the Bible College. He was one of the, the pastors at the Bible College that was one of the instructors there. And, and I became very, very close with him. And, and it, when he went and took off and went somewhere, he had to go on a vacation or something like that. He asked me to fill in for him and teach. And, and I shared with the class, I said, you know the thing about Bob is that, and, and Bob and I had just come back from about a three-week trip uh, over to Russia and Ukraine and into uh, 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 Belarusia and into Poland and into Europe and into Austria. We went all over the place with the Bible College. And uh, the thing with Bob Davis is that he never, <laughs> he's going to get this, this, this teaching, so he'll hear it again. Here's the thing. He is the same guy Every moment of the day. And I love that kind of a guy. I love that kind of an attitude. I love that kind of a character in a person. He is one of the most quick-witted guys that you'll ever hear. He used to be a, a DJ. Um, he also used to be a Las Vegas cop. I mean, he just kind of goes all over the place. Now he's a pastor of a church out in, you know, Coeur d'Alene, or not Coeur d'Alene, Post Falls. Um, here's the thing. He is the same upbeat guy. And he has the same attitude every single time I see him. There's no change in the guy. And I, I liken him too in that class that I taught for him. I said, I liken him to uh, your, your favorite animal that you have, your favorite dog. Because no matter how bad your day is, when you come home at the end of the day, you open the door and you, you, you come in and your dog licks you. He's just happy. Hey, hey, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? How you been gone for a long time? Man, am I happy that you're home. Man, do I love to see you. And their whole body is into the wiggle, right? Is into the tail wag. That's Bob. You walk into his office and you're just, man, I just, you know, I've had the most disastrous week. And you go in there and it's like, now he doesn't jump on you and lick you or anything like that. But he is like, hey, how you doing? You know, and you're just like, you know, I'm, I'm not doing real well. Hey, blah, blah, blah. And he just starts talking and you go, but I'm feeling a whole lot better right now because you know what? I've got a, a person like Phoebe in my life. I have somebody who's radiant and glowing and, and not that Bob is glowing. <laughs> uh, uh, he's radiant. He's beautiful. No, he's not really. He's ugly like me. But here's the thing. He's, he's one of those guys. Phoebe is one of those guy, one of those gals that you love to have in your life. Take lessons from people like Phoebe. Be radiant. Be glowing. Here's the thing. Not only is she radiant and glowing, there's a reason behind her radiance and her glowing, and it's because she has an awesome walk with the Lord. Paul says that she is a servant of the church. And, and I want you to receive her because she's going to go from Centuria where she is, and she's going to travel into Rome. And so the people that Paul is writing here to and that he's acknowledging here in chapter 16, Phoebe is going to go to Rome and she's going to hang out there with them for a season. And, and uh, of what we're, we're, we can gather from what Paul is saying, I want you to receive Phoebe radiance in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. But he calls her a servant of the church. A servant of the church. The word servant literally in the Greek is diakonos. And that's where we get our term deacon from. Now this is a woman who is considered a deacon. 
a, a, a servant. And, and I know that, that uh, you know, servant is a word that is, is used for the office of deacon in the area of Scripture. I don't have time to go through it. Philippians 1, 1, 1 Timothy 3, 8, you know, um, Acts chapter 6. You know, as we look at those areas of Scripture, you could look at those areas of Scripture and look at, at, at what a deacon is. Deacons are those servants and helpers within the body of Christ that help minister to the needs of the whole body. Really, we're introduced into deacons in Acts chapter 6 when the, the, the disciples, they are 12 strong. And here's the thing, there was a problem with serving people meals. And the disciples said, listen, we're spending all of our time serving people's meals and we're not able to pray and we're not able to study in order to bring you the spiritual food. We're only spending all of our time in delivering physical food that it's actually hurting the church. It's actually hurting our growth spiritually. And so here's the thing. Choose from among you seven men of good reputation. And we're going to appoint them as deacons over you guys. The deacons are the servants. They're the servants that are going to go in and they're going to help. They're going to undergird the body of Christ so that we can devote ourselves to prayer and to study of the word. So that they have something of spiritual nutritional value to give to the, or to the, give to the church when they have an opportunity to be around them. And so the first six disciples, or I'm sorry, the first six deacons are mentioned there in Acts chapter 6. Don't have time to look there. But Paul also more specifically defines the role and the qualifications of a deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. And I'm going to have you turn over there. uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 with me, if you would. Um, And as you're turning there, I just want to say a couple more things. I know that some may argue, uh, you know, the point that uh, that deacons are a male-only position, that they are a male-only position. However, I see too many times in Scripture, such as the area that we're in today in Romans chapter 16, where women are used of the Lord in the capacity, role, and the utilizing of the gifts of a deacon. Uh, many churches would, would consider, consider a woman deacon a deaconess. And when we were over in Fort Lauderdale, uh, my wife and I, um, Kevin and Christine, you were probably a deacon. Were you a deaconess over there in Fort Lauderdale? Kevin, you were a deacon, weren't you? You were a deacon. Um, and, and so we had deaconesses over there. We called them deaconesses. And, and I know that there were some people who said, well, I don't see deaconess in Scripture. Well, there's a lot of things you don't see in Scripture of a title. It's simply a title. It's a title of servant. It's a title of servant that is undergirding the body of Christ. It's coming in and serving the needs and the helps. Uh, they're, they're in the helps ministry and service industry of the body of Christ where they come in and they're able to minister in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, but let, each, uh, but let, also first, but let these also first be proved, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Okay? And it's the description of a deacon. And then verse 11 says, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, 
not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons, and then it goes back into talking about deacons again. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And so... Um, in Paul's description of the qualifications of a deacon, he states the term wives in verse 11. The word wives in the Greek is gine, gine, uh, gine, where we get our word gynecology from. A gynecology isn't about just a wife, it's about woman. And, and so the, the term can be either wife or it can be woman. It can be woman. And, and so um, there are many that look in Scripture and, and say, well, there is a place for women as deacons. This is being one of those. They're saying, here's the thing. This can be looked at in two different ways. It can be looked at as a wife of a deacon or it can be looked at as a woman who actually is serving in the role of a deacon. Um, John MacArthur is one that, that comes in and says, this is one of those areas where it seems that, that this area right here establishes a new role. There's another role here that is being spoken, Paul is speaking of in verse 11, of another position within the body of, of Christ that we don't talk about much, and that's called deaconesses. Why is it important? Because, uh, may I suggest, that this may be speaking, not be speaking of the actual wife, but of the women in the church that are actually operating in the role of a deacon or deaconess. And mind you, this isn't a hill that I'm choosing to die on in my exegesis. I'm not doing that. I'm not choosing to, to die on this hill and say, hey, you know, let's cast our salvation on this point. But hear me out here on this. It's clearly something, you know, that, that we are to strongly consider. I'm perfectly fine with women being given the role of a deaconess within the body of Christ. Now, if this is only speaking of a wife of a male deacon, this would present another issue. Um, does this mean that a deacon whose spouse is lacking in any of these things is suddenly disqualified to serve in the role of a deacon? You know, there's certainly strong argument to, su to support such a case. And, and if that is not what is intended here, at least gives a deacon the goal to shoot for in his marriage. The point here is if a man becomes a believer and abundantly spiritually grows in the Lord is he disqualified from service in the church as a deacon if his wife has yet not become a believer? If, if a man is, is walking in the Lord, is growing spiritually, is able to do the things that we read about in Acts chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 3, is he disqualified from being a servant in the church in that role if his wife doesn't yet have a relationship with the Lord? Or if there's a problem you know, with his wife? What if a deacon's wife becomes unfaithful, departs from her husband? Is the deacon now disqualified from his role of service within the church? I believe that this is where the leadership of the body of Christ is then to come together to discern what course of action is to be taken in a time like that. Could it be that the deacon becomes so ministry-minded that he neglects his family and in so doing basically deserts his family because he has more important things to do in the church? This is a slippery slope here, I know. But here's the thing. As many wives of ministers might argue that their husbands spend too much time doing ministry and not enough time at home, this can be a problem, right? Maybe you've heard that, that, you know, that challenge before. It could be that maybe the wife feels that any time that the husband 
spends apart from the family to focus on his role within the church is too much and she accuses him of abandoning the home because of ministry. Using the argument that other husbands, they go to work in their secular job and then they come home and spend time with their non-working hours to be with the wife and the family. And it's, it's logical. You see where the slippery slope is. However, conversely, think about it. It could be that, that the deacon has a secular job job outside of ministry to support his family, and then when his regular job is over, he immediately goes to the church to serve. He may spend most nights of the week at the church and away from his family. So you've got a problem there too. I believe that both of those instances right there are out of balance. First, if the deacon is not allowed out of the house at any time to serve at the church, then my question is, who exactly will do the service in the church? You know, it, it, it's in that, that that you look at and you go, well, here's the thing. I work outside of the church and I come in. If, if I fall into that role where I have to be with my wife and kids all the time and I can't, or my child all the time, uh, that, that I cannot dedicate any time to the church, well, who would teach? If Kevin did the same thing, he works outside of the church and he comes in and he studies and he counsels and he teaches and he meets with some of you guys and I meet with some of you guys and, and the thing is, if, if we don't do that because we spend all of our waking hours with our family, then who will do the work of the ministry? You see, there's a balance there. And it is a balance. And it's a tough balance to find. I don't care who you are, it's a tough balance. It's a tough balance to, 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 to find and to, to you know, uh, work with your wife and work with your kids. One of the standards here that we have at our church that I've borrowed from other churches that I've, that I've come out of is that if you're married, you're really only allowed to be here at the church and serve the church three nights of the week. Whereas if you're single, you can be here four nights of the week. That's kind of the standard that we had over at Fort Lauderdale. And, and the, the purpose behind that is, is that to make sure that a married person is attending to their family at home, giving them at least four of the seven nights of a week to minister to them while giving the church at most three nights. That means going to church, you know, uh, being involved in a, in a fellowship, being involved in maybe an extra ministry that's out there, maybe a home fellowship, or maybe a, a men's ministry. You're involved in, you know, service here. You, you also are involved in a men's ministry. You're also involved in a home fellowship, and you're involved in youth ministry, and then you're involved on the worship team, and you have all these different things where all of a sudden you have all these nights away from your family. That isn't setting a good precedent. Now, So that's why we kind of limit people to three nights a week because, because you need to spend time at home. We understand that. Now, why four nights for a single? Uh, well, so that they don't become so comfortable in the church and so insulated here at the church that they don't ever, ever venture outside in the lost world around them. This is hard. Uh, this is not necessarily a hard and fast rule, though, here. Uh, we will give opportunity it could very well be that you have a married couple, maybe they don't have kids, they absolutely love to serve together, and they want to serve four nights a week. We'll do that. We would do that. You know, hey, you're serving together. And so here's the thing. You know, it's a case-by-case basis. I think that this is where the leadership of the church needs to come in and, and make a determination in a situation like that. So, so here's the thing. All of this to say, I believe Phoebe was one of those deaconesses in the church. 
She was a servant. She was radiant in what she was doing. She loved the people. She served the people. She recognized, I can't believe that God would choose me to do what it is that I'm doing. I get the opportunity to touch God's people. I mean, if you're involved in the kids' ministry here, know this, you are touching the future. There was a a pastor up, and I can't remember his name for the life of me. I'm going to remember it as soon as I'm done with this message. Um, he was teaching one time and he, he, was, he, was, he used this illustration. He said that a fellow, you know, he went to an evangelistic meeting. He went to an evangelistic meeting because he was going to teach. He was going to give an evangelistic message and so he did and he came back and when he came back to his church, you know, one of his elders said, hey, how did it go? And he goes, oh, three and a half lives gave their heart to the Lord today. And, and the elder said, oh, pastor, that's so great. You had three adults and one kid. That is awesome. And the pastor said, oh, no, no, no. I only had one adult and three kids. Really? He says, yeah, the adult only has a half of his life left to live. The kids have their full life. So there was three full lives that gave their heart to the Lord today. And so here's the thing. When you're investing in the ministry of kids, you're investing in their whole life. And it's to be commended. To think that you have the opportunity to touch someone's life right now that is going to impact them for the rest of their life here upon the face of this earth. It's one of the greatest institutions that God has given to us in the body of Christ is to touch kids. Minister to them. Show them Jesus Christ. Point them in the right direction. And undergird them with a foundation of who Jesus is. It's an awesome, awesome privilege and responsibility and honor to be able to do that. That's Phoebe. Um, let me just quickly mention a couple of these others. Aquila and Priscilla. Greet Aquila and Priscilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. These two are mentioned more than, you know, at least five times in Scripture. Uh, the wife is always mentioned before the husband. Um, we don't really know the reason for that. Um, it's quite possible that maybe she's, the two are both quite strong in the Lord, but maybe it's that, you know, Aquila or uh, Priscilla, excuse me, the wife, is actually a a, a little bit more vocal. I'm not going to go much farther than that, but maybe the wife is a little bit more forward and a little bit more conversational and a little bit more approachable where, man, she starts the conversation and the husband kind of comes in behind her and undergirds her and what have you. And so, you know, when, when you... Think of, think of a couple that, that might have a wife that is very outgoing and the husband is there, strong believer. They're both believers. But the wife is someone who just, there's no barrier too much for her. You know, you, you think about that and oftentimes that person, that couple is referred to by the wife first and then, and then the husband. You know, it doesn't mean that the husband's a bad guy. It just means that God's gifted the wife to be very, very forward. And, and I'm just going to stop there. Um, couple others here, uh, Andronicus and Junia. I mean, if you look at Apennatus, uh, the first fruits of Aeta Christ, you know, um, these are, this is probably Paul's first convert to Christ there in Achaia. Mary, uh, this is not a Mary that we know. Um, at least most scholars don't believe that this is any of the Marys that we know, that this is a, a, a woman that just is a laborer, you know, for Christ. Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen, 
Andronicus and Junia, Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who were also in Christ before me. A couple things I just want to mention very, very quickly with these guys, um, Andronica and Junia. Andronicus, uh, his name, that name is impossible to determine whether or not it's male or female. We don't know. Scholars are, you know, vacillate on whether or not Andronicus is a male or female name. Junia, however, is a female name. And so there are many that believe that quite possibly Andronicus and Junia are like, you know, Aquila and, or Priscilla and Aquila, you know, that they're a married couple possibly. But they could be sisters or just friends that are, you know, women that are serving the Lord. Uh, why is that important? You know, there's a couple of things here that I would just say, and that is number one, um, there's a couple of ways to, to view what. Andronicus and Junia and their position is. Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen, Paul says, and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Now, there are those that will take that and say, who are of note among the apostles. So that, that they are of the apostles. They are an apostle. That they are women apostles. And then there's another uh, side of the coin that says, no, that doesn't mean that they're an apostle, that just means that they are noted among the apostles. That they have, you know, their works and, and, and the things in their life with the Lord is such a strong walk that the apostles, they note how devoted to the Lord that they are. Um, whichever the case is, you know, I don't really care. I don't really care. You know, I don't want to get into an argument over who is an apostle and who's not. I don't believe that we have apostles today like we had apostles then. There are some people that like to consider themselves and, and name themselves apostles today. I get letters every once in a while from somebody who says, you know, my name is Apostle such and such. I don't have a problem with somebody saying that. It's a little confusing sometimes with people because really an apostle, hang on Tom, um, that, uh, that apostle is really, going back to biblical Days in the days of the apostles, it's it's a person who actually had a a one on one with Christ. It was a it was a person who had been taught by Christ. It's one who had been sent by Christ, but really an apostle was one who sent. And so, really, when we consider missionaries today, missionaries are really modern day apostles because they're ones that are sent by the Lord. You know, you might call yourself an apostle. That's okay. I don't have a problem with it. It's just a little confusing because we do have kind of terminology today where we go, well, an apostle, we would, I would immediately say, okay, we need to clarify terms here. When you consider yourself an apostle, I want to clarify terms. What do you mean by that? And so to, to stop the confusion sometimes, we just say, well, I'm a missionary. Good. Awesome. You know, I'm not an apostle. Not an apostle. But in the truest sense of the word, if you're one who's sent by God, you're an apostle. You're an apostle. And so the thing is, is that, that people have a problem with, with Andronicus and Junie because they're going, well, women can't be apostles. You're saying women can't be sent? That's not true. Uh, Priscilla was one who was sent by the Lord. You know, Priscilla and her husband Aquilus. A um, couple other things that I want to just note here and, and then I've I, I got to close up. Um, Amplis and beloved in the Lord, Urbanus, fellow worker in Christ, Statius, my beloved, uh, Apellus, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countryman. 
Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Now, um, greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. The next verse in verse 11, Paul uses the same verbiage. He says, greet Herodian, my countrymen, but greet those who are of the household of Narcissus. Now, here's the point. He greets Herodian, but he doesn't greet Aristobulus, nor does he greet Narcissus. He greets those who are of the household of these people. Most scholars, they believe that Aristobulus is actually the brother of Herod Agrippa I and the grandson of Herod the Great. And, and uh, scholars also believe that Narcissus is most likely the secretary of Emperor Claudius. And so you have these high-ranking officials that are against the Lord, that are against Christ, that are against Christianity as a whole. In fact, they've been used to try to wipe out Christ. For it was Herod that tried to wipe out all the kids from two years young or from two years old and under, kill them all, because we need to get the Christ. That was the whole purpose of, you know, you know, Rachel uh, weeping. You know, for all of the kids that were she weeping for her children because they were all massacred by this king that was so jealous for his throne that when they were told that a king was born, a king was born and he was going to be a greater king than Herod. Herod says, yeah, that ain't going to happen. I'm going to kill all the kids. And so he slaughtered all kids two years old and younger in order to try to eradicate Christ. That Herod. <laughs> and, and, and that's the power that he had. And yet, think about it. He was trying to destroy the work of God. And here's what God has done. He's turned it around and he's started a revival in the family's home. Amongst the servants, the servants are coming to know the Lord. The people who were working for Aristobulus, the brother of Herod Agrippa, you know, the first, and, and the grandson of Herod the Great, he's in there. And, and, and though he isn't a believer, we, nobody believes that Aristobulus and Narcissus are both believers. They're of the household. The people that are in their household have a home fellowship. <laughs> the servants are coming together and having Bible studies one with another, and they're believers. What's interesting, though, is that it says, and Herodian, my kinsman. Herodian's name means that he is of the ha family of Herod. And so therein lies Aristobulus, Narcissus, both of them kind of in the Herod line and Claudius line. And here's the thing. Herodian comes in. His name is mentioned in between these two households, which kind of signify that of the government of, 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 of what we would look at as the government, of, of the, the government that is against the Lord, there's a work amongst even that that God is doing. God is reaching what we would consider to be the unreachable. And, and this kind of strikes close to home to a lot of us. I mean, here you look at maybe our present government and you might look at some proceedings that were going on this week. And you might look at, at these things and go, man, judgment, judgment, judgment against the Lord. Or you, you might have these, these, these ideas that... that God will never be able to reach these people. And yet, God reaches these types of people all the time. God's hand is not shortened that he can't save and forgive. Even the most disastrous things that we've seen, even amongst our own present leaders in our own country, God's hand is not shortened that he can't reach out and touch them and minister to them and save their souls. The idea is, is a Christian church praying for them or are we so against them that we want to see them burn in hell 
because of how they've done what they've done to our country. Here's the thing. We need to pray. We need to pray for them. That's right. So here's the thing. We're called to pray for our leaders because the leaders are there because God has placed them in position. Paul talks about that back in the book of Romans as we were there. But here's the thing. Paul says Herodian, what's interesting here is that Paul says that Herodian is a family member of his. It says my countrymen. But it also says in the in the New King James Version, he says, my kinsman. He also uses another term where it is of my family, of my family, which, which is interesting that when you think about this, Paul is specifying himself as a brother or a kinsman, a family member of Herodian. And if you take that to maybe its logical end, Paul could either be doing one of two things. Either he's saying, well, he's a brother in Christ now because he came to know the Lord. And it's quite possible that that's what it is. But there are actually some scholars that sit here and say, could it be that Paul actually was of the line of Herod? That actually he had some bloodline that attached himself to the family line of Herod. And if that's the case, think about it. Paul never mentions it. But what Paul does is that he, he distances himself away from that which is so anti-God that he becomes such a man that, that comes to a point in his life where he says, I do this thing. I forget all the things that are behind me and I press toward the upward call of Christ Jesus. I press towards the Lord. The point is, I don't care who or where I came from. My job is to walk from this day forward. Now, the reason I bring this out is because I want you to understand. I don't know where you're from. I don't know what your background is. I don't, I don't care where, you know, what, you know, I know that a lot of psychology and psychologists and psychiatrists really want to take us when we have problems to take us back into our past to find out why we are the way we are. When in actuality, Christ is not like that. Christ says, who you used to be is not important to me. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. Paul wrote that because he understood who I used to be is not who I am. That's not the makeup of who I am. Who I am is who Christ has made me from the moment that I accepted him as my Lord and my Savior. And so here's the thing for us, and here's what I want you to leave with, and this is the point that I really kind of want to touch on as I end today, and that is this. I don't care where you've come from. Somebody might want to take you back into the garbage can to find out why you smell the way that you smell. And the thing is, they'll want to keep you there and keep going back to that smell. Well, you remember this is what happened to you. You remember that this is who you were. You remember that this is why you think the way you do. Stop going back into the past to find out why you smell the way you do. Or do the things that you do because of what you were. The thing is, is that Christ has set us free. And that is what the world has not been able to grasp. And those in the church, they've embraced worldly philosophy that says we need to go back into the past. We need to continue to go back and dwell on the past. And and I know that that I'm kind of on a little soapbox here. 
You know, I know that Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous has done a lot of great things for people. But when someone goes into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and they've been clean for 40 years and they go into those meetings and say, my name is such and such and I am an alcoholic. The point is, why continue to go back in the past to be in that? Why not go in there and say, my name is Don Haskins and I am brand new in Christ. I'm no longer who I used to be. Christ has set me free. Christ has set me free. And so the point is, the world likes to continue to keep our legs shackled to to our past. When in all actuality, Christ wants to set you free, man. He wants to break the shackles and the chains that bind you down. But we, we, we give an ear way too much to the world. Well, the world says this. The world says that. I don't care. The world didn't die for you. The world is perishing. The thing is, is that Christ has set you free. He's afforded you the ability to be set free. And the point is here, we don't have to be depressed because of our past. Know this. As you breathe in right now and you breathe out, that is a testimony to the fact that God is not done with you yet. He's still working in you. He wants to do a work in you. And he's not going to do a work in you based on your past. He's going to do a work in you because of the things that he sees potentially for you in the future. And it's us that sometimes hinder his work. Because we dwell so much on our failures of our past. God wants to set you free here today. Paul says, man, I forget those things that are in the past. It's no longer worthy of my mind. I'm only going to press forward towards the upward call of Christ Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. I may have come from the lineage of Herod, but you know what? That is not what defines me. Christ defines me today. Christ defines me. Who who defines you? What defines you? You have to ask yourself that question. What defines you? Is it your past? Is it what you've gone through? And are you still dwelling on the things that you've gone through? And that's where you're stuck? You're like... You're like a hamster on the wheel doing a lot of running but you're going nowhere you feel like your walk with the Lord is stuck on that hamster wheel and you're not going anywhere here's the thing God wants to set you free get out of the past and start looking towards the future what does God want to do in your life today you wake up with that attitude on a day by day basis and watch but God's not going to blow your mind at the plan he has for you not only is it going to just blow your mind, it's going to get exciting every single day you wake up in the morning because you're going to go, wow, there's a new step out there. There's a new cornerstone. There's a new flagstone for God to set me on tomorrow. Get the picture in your head that you are walking across the river of life and it's a roaring rapid that's out there. And you have to go from this side to that side this day But the one who made the river actually has set just under the surface of the water flagstones that are out there (coughs) that if you were to step on them, you'd walk safely across. (coughs) If he's on the other side and he says, listen, I've placed flagstones out there for you to walk on. What I want you to do is I'm going to take your right foot and I want you to take a step out about two feet and set it down in the water. I can't see the rock, trust me. 
okay. And you step on something firm. And he goes, now listen, your left foot, take it straight out and, and take it another two feet. I've got a rock there for you. Here, Lord, here, yes, put your foot down. Boom, you stick your, stick your foot down. It's two feet out. The reason why it's two feet out, because you have to commit to get there. You have to commit to get there. There's no toe dipping. When we're walking with the Lord, well, I'm going to see if, if God's going to be there before I actually take that step. God says, I want you to take a step and you'll find me. And so you do. And you find every single time that there's a flagstone under your feet. The point is, is like Peter, we can always get scared of the roaring light, river of life that's going under our feet and we begin to think, if I only do this, if I do that, I think I need to do that, I think I need to do that, where we find ourselves dunking ourselves in the water and being washed down the stream because here's the thing, we're not listening to the Lord. The exciting thing is, is to be able to listen to the Lord and know the steps that he has planned out for you on a day-by-day basis and there is the excitement of the Christian walk. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's hard at times. And it's scary at times. But it is exhilarating when you find the Lord in those, in those difficult days. I'm not promising you, and God doesn't promise you, no hard times in front of you. What he promises you is that he will be with you in those hard times. And I ask you this, would you rather go through easy times without the Lord or through hard times with him? You have to make that determination on your own. We've got to trust the Lord with your day. We've got to trust the Lord every five minutes, every two seconds. We've got to trust the Lord with our life. All these people that Paul writes out here, um, you know, Rufus, he was the, the son, they believe, of the Cyrenian that carried the cross for Christ. There's, there's meaning in these names. And hopefully, as we've looked at some of these names and kind of drawn some, some, you know, some meat out of these names and looked at our own life through them, know this, Paul writes Romans 16 and he names out names. No, your name is written. As I, as I opened up today in prayer, your name is written in the book of life. Your name is written down by the Lord in his own book. Follow him. He knows the way. Don't look behind you. Be a servant. Be radiant for Christ. Trust him to be one who is sent to go and do the work that he's called you to do. And don't worry about your past. Trust him with your future. Amen? Does that make sense? Father, thank you so much for today. And, and Lord, I pray that this has resonated with not just one of us, but every one of us. That when we walk out of this place today, we know that, God, you have a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us, specifically. Yes, you might have a corporate plan for our church, but Lord, you have a specific plan for us individually. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to find those flagstones in the river that we walk through called life. God, you'd keep us safe. You'd keep us walking on the road. Regardless 
of how difficult it may be, no matter how scary the ground under us might look, may we take steps in faith, ventures of faith in you, and trust you with our lives completely and totally as we release the weight off of our back foot and take full pressure on our front foot as we step on you, step to you, step through you as you lead us on in this life that we live. Each one of us, God. Make us a a church. Make us individuals in this church. Individuals of faith. Individuals of surrender. Individuals of obedience. Individuals of obedience and, and purpose that trust you with our very next steps in life. Lord, that's our, that's our life. That's what, that's what we can offer you today. Lord, I pray if anybody has been touched in here with this, Lord, I pray that you meet them right now where they are. They might be going through a very difficult, scary time in their life right now, but God, no, help them to know that you're right there with them. Help them to know that you are there to help them take the very next steps. And even though they're, they might be afraid that the next step that you're asking them to take is, is a scary one, Lord, if it's of you and they've sought your face through it, that no matter where that step is, you're going to protect them, Lord. You're going to be with them. You have a purpose through that step. doesn't mean that they're not going to, that next step isn't going to cause difficulty. But Lord, the thing that we can become as Christians is so myopic and we're, we're so concerned about the next step that we don't look at the whole of the canvas of the painting that you're painting in our life of what this difficult step here might produce in the canvas of our life. And so God, even when we encounter those difficult, scary times in life, may we embrace them as we embrace you For we can handle all things. As Paul, your servant, said, if God be for us, who can be against us? And I add, Lord, if anyone is, who cares? We've got you. So Lord, I pray that you free us in this building, in this hearing of this message. May we walk freely after you, taking these steps of faith on a day-by-day basis. And help us to trust you with our life. In Jesus' name, amen.